Uh, Galatians chapter four. We're gonna try to do the whole thing. I did hit it twice on Sundays, so I think I can do it. Um, Here's a way to look at this chapter. Uh, On Monday morning, we came back Sunday night from just being up in Portland. And uh, I don't know if you know Rod and Zona Cochran, but uh, Zona Cochran finished her fight on Monday morning. And it's something to celebrate. She and Rod are incredible. Just their marriage, the way that Rod spoke about his bride is something that I am envious of. He was always just amazing about the way he looked at his marriage, looked at his wife, just brilliant. And he had prayed over and over that she would go first, that he would uh, be the one that is able to care for her to her last day, and that's exactly what he did. So bittersweet, you know, no doubt. So we hear about that, and uh, Monday morning, I grabbed my family, uh, myself, my kids, and we had one of our foster kids at that time. And um, if you know me and my family, we, we tend to be on the scrawny side. Genetics, I am, I've always been scrawny. And if you've seen Myron, my five-year-old, that's what I looked like when I was five. Just, you know, you turn sideways and you disappeared. Where did Myron go? Oh, there he is. So that's just our, our, our genetics. Um, three-year-old Jackson, who's with us right now, a different gene pool. He looks like a sumo wrestler at three. He is massive. He's just like, you're like, Jackson, man, dude. I can't even, he wants to still be held like a three-year-old. And I'm like, I can't do it, man. You're throwing my shoulder out. Like for a week, I hold you and man, my shoulder's bad. So that's the setup. So we go to Rod's house and uh, just gather around and pray for him and laugh and cry and do everything you do in those situations. Uh, and I m- got to meet um, Zona's daughter. And she comes in, so I'm introducing everybody, right? So I'm like, hey, this is my wife, Charity, and this is Carissa, and this is Bella, and this is Gabrielle, and this is Elijah, and this is Myron. And Jackson had been hiding somewhere. And so I was like, he's not here. And she's like, oh, great to meet you. Just super nice. And then Jackson came out and she looked at him and she goes, who's this one? (laughs) Right? It reminded me of like, like the, the thing that came to my mind is like when Myron will bring home like this preschool paper, and it'll be, which one of these is not the same? Like circle the one, I was like, which one of these is not the same? That kid is not the same. <laughs> All right, so that's kind of a rough illustration of what Paul's gonna do here. He's gonna use this very known example, which everyone would know in that, history, in that time. In the second century, first century, even back into the, the 100 BCs, there was a slave system. But if you walked into a house, you would not be able to say, hey, this is a son and this is a slave. You couldn't say, hey, which one of these is not the same? Because they would look exactly the same. It was very different from our heritage of slavery, which was based on race. Their heritage of slavery was based on power. Whichever was the most powerful army would conquer whoever they wanted. And when they conquered a land, they'd simply say, now you're my slave. And slaves sometimes were better educated. So if a family wanted a doctor, they would take a smart slave, they would educate that slave, and he would become the family doctor. Most people believe Luke, the physician, was Theophilus's doctor. And that Theophilus at some point, if you don't know what I'm talking about, read Luke and Acts. He's the author of Luke and Acts. 
and set him free to go help Paul. So that's just very different, right? So you'd walk into a house, there was no way for you to be like, oh, there's the slaves over there and there's the sons. That you couldn't do that until a certain day. And on that certain day, everything would change about the son. And he's gonna use that then as an example to say, this is what the gospel does for you. Like, which one's the different? You can't tell until there's a moment when something happens inside of you that everything changes in that moment. You become something different, all right? So let's jump in. Verse one. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. That's what he's saying right there. Couldn't tell the difference. Though he's the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Is that a strange little phrase? Who in here was not born of a woman, right? It's a random little phrase, isn't it? Or is it not random? No, what is it? It's, it's what I call a hyperlink. You know, when you're reading a webpage and you come down and there's something like in blue, you can click on it and it takes you to another webpage that talks about what you just, that little phrase. The Bible does this all the time. And when it says the born of a woman, what's it hyperlinking to? Genesis 3.15, right. Hey, good news, Adam and Eve, you blew it big time. You just gave up your right as heir to the world to this serpent. But good news, the seed of a woman is coming and he's going to crush this serpent's head and it will bruise his heel. So it's not just a random phrase, it is pointing all the way back right now to any person that knows the Bible, ah, hyperlink to this entire Old Testament unwrapping of who Messiah would be. So born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So now he's doing this thing that everyone would know about a home. And verse two says this, that the, the son and slave, they look exactly the same until the date set by the father. So our system is like this. When you have your 18th birthday, you're considered an adult. Now, is that real or not? It's so arbitrary. There are 14-year-olds that I say, you are a man already. And there are 36-year-old boys with beards. That, you you got to grow up, bro. You're 13. I know you're 30, but you're actually 13, okay? So um, at this time, it was very different. What a dad would do is a dad would train and watch his son. And once the son began to show that he looked like and was acting like an adult, then he would set a date. 
And until that date, Roman law mandated a son had to obey his father, period. So you could be 48 and your dad hadn't set the date yet. You're still going, yes, dad, yes, dad. Like that was the law. So very different from us. And I think it's probably a little bit better. Like it was a waiting for anticipation. I'm growing into being what an adult is. And when that date came, a dad would do this, okay. They would literally strip him of his clothes that made him look like everybody else. You couldn't tell the difference. They would strip him of those clothes and they would put on what's called the toga virilis. It was men's clothing and it had a belt. It was, guess what? No more baggy shorts. No more showing your underwear anymore. You're wearing men's clothes now. You're putting on a belt. You're putting on this. And when someone comes into the house now, they know there's the man of the house. I can tell now. They've been changed. You're not a slave anymore. You're a son. And because you're a son, over and over in this little scripture, it says, it ends verse seven like this. You're not a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir. You have the inheritance. You're an heir. It'd be like getting a call on your phone and looking down at the caller ID and it says Buckingham Palace. When you answer the phone, you're like, hello. And it's someone with a British accent. Is this so-and-so? Yes, it is. Is your mom so-and-so? Yes. Is your dad so-and-so? Yes. Oh, great. Congratulations. We found the heir to the throne of, of whatever, the empire of Great Britain. You're like, what? That's impossible. No, it's really you. No, that's impossible. I'm Chinese. It couldn't possibly work for me. <laughs> It'd be like hearing that. Like, are you kidding me? Wow. So what do we inherit? What's the inheritance of the believer? Is it heaven? As good as that is? No. Is it forgiveness? As much as we need that? No. Is it gifts and talents? Ephesians chapter four says that Jesus gives to us. Nope. Is it power? Nope. In Genesis 15, which is the story that's gonna overlay all of Galatians, the Abrahamic story. God shows up to Abraham in chapter 15, verse one. He says this, I am your exceeding great reward. What's the inheritance of the believer? It's him. It's him. That's what it is. Our inheritance is him. It's why Moses in Exodus 33, God says, you know what? You guys blew it big time. I'm not going with you anymore. And what does Moses say? If you're not going, I'm not going either. If you're not gonna go into the land, the land's not what I want. I want you. Moses knew it. It's what the new covenant says. I'm going to, you will be my people and I will be your God. It's this relational, you get me. It's why the entire Bible ends in Revelation by saying, then we see him face to face, Revelation 22, four. You finally have inheritance complete then. I think we miss that. And we get caught up in all these other things that are awesome and great, but they're not the thing. And it almost be like this. If you're talking to a bride about her wedding and you're saying, hey, what's happening at the wedding? And she starts talking about the church that it's gonna be. And it's this beautiful church, it's awesome. You know, they have these two giant doors that open up and it's inside and outside, it's brilliant. <laughs> It's coming. 
and we're gonna have these awesome dresses for all the bridesmaids, and I've got this incredible dress, and the food's gonna be outstanding, and man, the flowers are so, well, what about the groom? Oh yeah, he's fine. But back to the flowers and the church, and the, right? You'd be like, something's wrong there. I think so often that's the way we treat God. Like, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's great. But no, he is the inheritance. It's him, it's him. That's our inheritance. Now, what's the proof that you're not a slave anymore? You're a son, you're a daughter. What's the proof? Because we don't have a toga to wear around. We don't have a belt. What's the proof? Which is the entire really problem in Galatian, that the churches of Galatia have been caught up in proving it, right? And the way that they were saying, prove you're a good believer, drop your drawers, be in pain. That will prove that you are dedicated to this thing. Today, we have the same things. Certain sides say, you have to speak in tongues. That kind of makes you it. You give this amount of money. You serve. Maybe it's the car you drive. Volkswagen, you're saved. Porsche, you're not saved. You know, the way that you vote, you vote this way, you're saved. If you don't vote that way, you, you know, we have all this stuff. You come Wednesday night, you get some extra credit, which you totally do. 100%, you get extra credit. Right, we have all these kind of ways of saying This is how you're a great believer. This is how you wear the toga today. But what does it say in this text? It's verse six. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The way you know you're part of his family is because Romans 8, 15 and 16 just puts it like this. His spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There's this bearing witness. I know that I know that I know that he's my dad. That's the proof. No outward thing. It's inside your heart. You know that you know that you know that you are one of his. We spend way too much time, I think, in the New Testament looking at God through judicial lenses, justification, um, uh, forgiveness, ransom, when all those things are important, but they pale in comparison to what is elevated over and over in this relationship. He becomes your father. That's what's elevated over and over. You become his sons, you get adopted and brought into his family, and he becomes your Abba, your Papa, your father, and you belong to him. And it changes everything. Slaves are defined by their work. Sons and daughters are defined by their relationship. It's massively different. Like every once in a while, there'll be a, I don't know what happens, but it's like a log jam and then it breaks. And then on a Sunday, a whole bunch of people wanna talk to me. Like I'll go five, six Sundays and no one will wanna talk to me, which is fine. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't need it. But it'll be like, all of a sudden something just happens and like, I'll just have a line of people that wanna talk to me. And I love that, man, it's totally cool. Uh, and so th- th- they're always polite and they're waiting in line and you know, they all know who was there and all that kind of stuff. But I also have a five-year-old son, Myron. And it doesn't matter how long that line is, Myron just takes cuts and he comes right up to the front and he just grabs me and he goes, dad, here's what I want. And no one ever is bothered by that, right? No one ever loses the fruit of the spirit over Myron doing that. Why? Because he's my son. And there's just a whole different set of rules for sons and daughters. 
It defies everything else. That's why I think Hebrews puts it like this, that we can now come boldly before our heavenly father, his throne of grace and receive help in our time of need. That all the rules changed. We don't approach him as slaves anymore. We approach him as sons and as daughters. And we march right in and say, dad, here's what I need. Slaves are, are, their whole thing is based on duty. Sons, it's all based on partnerships. Hey, how can I partner in the kingdom with my dad? Sons are secure in their relationships. Slaves are always worried. Did I do enough? Did I repent enough? Did I repent right? Did I repent wrong? Is God pleased? Right? That's what slaves do. They're always anxious and worried. Slaves are motivated by, by fear. Sons are motivated by love. And so all this is right here in this text. Are you a son or a slave? It's based on, do we look at God as our Abba? That's the big point. And that's gonna be attacked. And that's what happens in verse eight. So he switches gears and we did this on Sunday. I'll do it super quick. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, very interesting that he changes that. It's not so much that you know God, it's that you are known by God. Like there's two things that everybody wants, to be known and to know. And right here, it says you get both of those. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I did this on Sunday, a couple of weeks ago. Um, if you look at the whole Bible, there are two forces in the Bible. There's God and the angels and there's Satan and his crew. And they're both vying for the same prize, you and me. And you see it played out in the first three chapters. God says, here's how you serve me. I made this beautiful place for you. Be fruitful and multiply, have dominion over it, right? Eat, sleep, be merry, love each other, make babies. Like that's a good thing. There's just one thing you can't do. Don't near that tree. That was God's way. And then what does a certain serpent come and do? Now there's an easier way. If you just eat that tree, you'll get everything God wants you'd have. But God told me not to. Don't, did God really say that? From that point on, that's the way it's been. And that's what I think Paul is getting at right here. There's a demonic deception that says Jesus is not enough. And it's always gonna be there. It's always gonna be coming back at you. It's like this, it's like uh, Pinocchio, right? He becomes a real boy. It's like Pinocchio becoming a real boy and then saying, you know what? I want the strings back. What? Why would you want the strings back? You're a real boy now. Yeah, I like those strings. That's the deception. You've been set free. You've been made a son. You've made a daughter. And now you want to go back to the strings of the law? How silly is that? You don't need strings. Chapter five is going to say, you need my spirit. That's what you need. You don't need strings of the law anymore. You're a real boy. You're a real girl now. You need my spirit. That's what you need. So you can get that if you want to podcast or whatever. Verse 12, changes gears here dramatically. 
It's been theologian Paul. He takes off that hat and he puts on pastor hat. Brothers, I entreat you become as I am for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know, it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testified to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Been a theologian, now he becomes a friend. So on Sunday, two weeks ago, you get some really good pointers on being a good friend. And let me make a couple of cleanup ideas on this text. Number one is this, Paul is sick. This is the apostle Paul, whose handkerchiefs healed people. He's sick. Why is that important? Because there are certain people that will say, if you really have faith, you will never ever get sick. There are people that use some proof texts in the Bible, a couple of them, to then say, all you have to do is ever, all you have to do is have the right amount of faith, whatever it is, and you will never ever have any kind of problem. You'll never suffer. And they get really strange if you've noticed. Like they won't let you say certain words. Like if you say cancer or something, they'll say, don't say that, you give it power. Like, really, you do? Cancer, 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 cancer. <laughs> don't say cold. No, I don't have a cold. And they're sniffing and sneezing and, and like runny nose and red eyes. No, I don't have a cold. This you do, you have a cold. No, I don't. Like it gets, they almost get, it almost gets like superstitious. And their favorite guy to point back to is Moses. Because it says this, that Moses died at 120 years of age. His eye was not dim. His strength was not diminished and his skin was perfect. I guess he used oil of a lay or something. And they're like, that's what every believer should be. You live to 120, you never have a problem. You never wear glasses. You never have bad eyesight. You never have a skin blemish. You're, you're never weak. And then just one day you die. It's crazy to me. And it's not right. Because if that's the standard, Paul fails. And what Paul will say about weakness and illness, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says this, I needed it. There was this thorn given to me, probably the same thing he's talking about right here. And it buffeted me and it hurt me. And I prayed three times, God, take this thing away from me. And what did God say? Nope, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so what does Paul then say? Ah, I now glory in my weaknesses because when I'm weak, then he is strong. You want superhuman strength? Figure out your weaknesses. 
and let Jesus be your strength. That's what Paul says, right? And it's his weakness, verse 13 says, it's the fact that he was weak that led him to this area. It probably stopped him. If you read the book of Acts, he stopped in this area and starts these churches. If he had not been sick, he would have skipped Galatia. We would not have this book right now. And man, the Bible would be not complete in my mind because God uses sickness and disease for his purposes. C.S. Lewis was asked once, why do Christians suffer? And his answer was, because we're the only people that can handle it. And I like that. It is only through a biblical worldview that you get an understanding of suffering in its right context. We're the only people that can handle it. You can do everything right, believer. You can have great faith and you can still get sick. And just because you suffer or just because you get sick does not mean God's mad at you or you have some kind of secret sin or you lack faith. It means none of those things. And Paul is the perfect example of that. Now, if I am sinning and doing bad stuff, it's probably gonna lead to bad repercussions in my life. But bad repercussions does not mean that I sinned or did something wrong, if that makes sense. And Paul is the perfect example of it right? So he says, two things I want to quickly talk about on friendships. And Paul's experienced a hard friendship right here. He's like, you guys are my buddies and we're fighting. Ever fought with a good friend? Ever found that friendships are really hard? Like you really need them? It's not good for Adam to be alone. But then sometimes friendships are the hardest things in the world. And Paul's going to say, that's what I found. And he says, two things that I think are really important when it comes to real friendships. Number one is verse 16. Look what he says. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Has that ever happened to you? You took a friend aside and you told him the truth and then he gets mad at you or she gets mad at you. It doesn't work that easy. Most of us, most friendships, here's what I think most friendships are built on. Most friendships are built on my desire for people to like me. That's what most friendships are. And so because the friendship is built on me wanting someone to like me, then I rarely will tell them truthful things. Because by telling them truthful things, what happened to Paul might happen to me but that's not really a friendship. It's very selfish, actually. It's very focused on me. Um, I heard this saying, it, it, it says all roads lead to narcissism. And I thought that is so true. That if you really track back a lot through your own roads in your life, most of it leads to me, like it's narcissistic. And a lot of friendships are exactly that. It's about me. I want you to like me. And I prioritize that over what is best for you. So sometimes I won't tell something to somebody because I want that person to keep liking me, right? It's, it's how you and I get the first two weeks of every talent show that we watch on TV. Why is that guy up there singing like that? Why is he dancing like that? Why didn't someone tell him? Well, because they wanted him to like him. Oh yeah, you're great at that, bro, right? And then someone has to tell him the, the truth. Dude, you stink, get off the stage. We should be a group of people, and it's two ways, really. A group of people that tell people the truth. 
Paul says this, it's 2 Corinthians 2, 4. He says this, the proof that I love you is that I told you hard things. I think he got that from Solomon who would say, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Like the best friend you could ever have is someone that will tell you hard things. Someone that will tell you, bro, you got something coming out of your nose and it's not air. I'm thankful for that. Yesterday, I was in a meeting and a friend said, bro, your zipper's down in front of a bunch of other people. I said, thank you so much. You actually love me. I said, I don't know what the rest of you guys do. I don't know if you love me or not. And Matt Hamilton was there. He's like, no, nah, it's just that I wasn't looking in that area. <laughs> I said, okay, touche. Please tell me stuff like that, man. There's a lot to lose for me up here, especially on a Sunday. Please, stakes are high, right? Real friends tell people the truth. And when you do that, it stops the pattern where people get backdoored. Where then you tell, oh man, did you see this about that guy? Yeah, okay. And then it goes around a bunch of people and then it gets them through the back door. And like all those people are saying that about me. Why didn't somebody come tell me? And then what happens in that is it completely destroys that community. And usually irreparably. Instead of just one person doing Matthew 18, where Jesus says, you go directly to that person and you sit down with them, you have a lunch with them and you share stuff with them. And if we're gonna be that kind of community, then you have to receive that as well. You can't be like someone says, hey bro, I really need to talk to you about something. And then you respond like, oh, you got something to talk to me about. <laughs> well, listen, I got a list for you, right? You see a speck in my eye, you got a log in your head, okay, buddy? You can't respond that way. Even though you really want to respond that way. You have to be like, okay, thank you. Swallow your pride and go home and pray. Is this true? And then talk to a couple of people that you really trust, your spouse, whoever it is, family, and say, this guy told me this, or this gal told me this. Is it true? And then listen to those people as well. And if it becomes true, then you say, Jesus, I don't want this to be true about me. Change me, change me. That's real friendship. And number two, it goes right along with it. Paul says this, verse 19. My little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He has a plan for their growth. So Paul says, you guys are my friends. I told you the truth and I have this plan for you. And it's so interesting. What a metaphor, huh? For a guy to use. And he says, spiritual formation, it's like giving childbirth. It's like having a baby. Have you ever been in the room when a baby is born? Five times. Five, I will never do it again. Five times, that's it. Man, unbelievable. Tears, agony, screaming, sweat, exhaustion. That's not to mention what my wife went through. <laughs> it's brutal. Paul says that's spiritual formation, right? So we can get this like fairy tale idea of what it's gonna be to like, I just wanna walk with somebody. I wanna disciple them and I wanna mentor them. No, you're gonna have childbirth, tears, agony, sweat, pain, exhaustion. That's what it's gonna actually be. That's real spiritual formation. It's like childbirth. Are you willing to sign up? For that one. 
because that's actually the way it is. And then he says this, I wanna see Christ formed in you. I think too often, so much of what I see and what I read when it comes to spiritual formation is, um, we don't wanna see Christians formed, little Christs. Typically what I wanna see formed is a little mat, a Mattian, right? I like the way I do spiritual things and I like kind of the way that I'm following Jesus. So you should do what I'm doing. I just kind of really want to replicate myself in you. And so you need to do all the things that I'm doing, which is usually really one-sided. What I'm finding more and more is I actually really need to listen to this person and what they're saying and where they're at and then pray about it and really say, how do I see Jesus formed in this person? Instead of being like, it's gotta be my path. Well, my path is unique to me. And the way that Jesus has worked with me, man, I'm so grateful for. But that does not necessarily mean that's gonna be the same exact way that Christ is gonna be formed in somebody else. And I should in humility be saying, well, my goal is not to say me formed in this guy. Yes, I need to use my wisdom and where I've been, but I actually, I actually need to see Christ formed in them. How can I see Christ formed? And I love Paul's perspective here. It's these Galatian believers that are my friends, they haven't arrived yet, right? They're broken people. And so his expectation of them was much more honest and much more doable than trying to have this perfect example of what a friend's supposed to be. Hey, I realized there's gonna be some childbirth with you guys. There's gonna be some work, some anguish and some tears and I'm okay with all of those things. This is one of the verses I use now in marriage counseling. To me, this is marriage. Marriage is a covenant of two people. They're not marrying for, protect, for perfection or for status or even for love. It's a gospel reenactment. I am marrying you, wife. I am marrying you, husband, for one reason, because I wanna see the gospel reenacted in our life together. I wanna see Jesus formed in you. And that's why I love the old covenants. I love the old vows, right? It's not this mushy, gushy perfection, I met you. No, for better or for worse. It's in the vow you're actually knowing, guess what? She's not perfect and he's not perfect, but that does not matter because I'm gonna anguish and I'm gonna push and there's gonna be tears and it doesn't matter until I see Christ formed. In sickness and in health, if we're rich or if we're dirt poor, does not matter. And I don't say as long as we both shall live. I say until death takes us, until cancer destroys us, we're coveting this way. To me, that's, that's the only way that marriage ever works. Because if you marry because you think she's perfect or he's perfect, oh, you're gonna be so devastated. But instead of you say, uh-uh, we're coveting together and our life is part of the way that we are fixed and healed and we move forward into all that Jesus has for us. Man, you have the right perspective of marriage and that's where you can start seeing real joy and Jesus really work through two people because you're just ready for it and you're willing to see it happen. Ah, oh, it's so good. Do you have a plan like that for your marriage? Is that the way that you see your spouse? I hope so. I think too often, what happens in marriages is it just kind of becomes this, this uh, 
status quo really. And there's not really a plan anymore. And there's not really hope anymore. And there's not really like a commitment to work anymore. It's just, you kind of just, you're, you're roommates. And you're just kind of maintaining stuff. So I have this thing that I'll give to couples sometimes. It's by this guy, his, his name is Marcel Proust. And he did this, these 35 questions because he said, and he does it for relationships, any kind of relationships, but usually marriage, but even dating people and stuff. And he says, what happens is we, we fall into our personalities and then our conversations look identical week after week, after month, after month, after month. There's no new like interest and no new kind of, like it was when we first got to know each other. So he gives these like 35 really great questions and he'll just sit a couple down and say, just spend 10 minutes on this, going through these questions. And then I want you to talk, tell me how it worked. And these people will be like, unbelievable. Like we never ask these kind of questions. But in, in the last 10 minutes, I've learned more about my spouse or learned more about my fiance than I had in the previous 10 months because they were focused, planned questions. Brilliant, you can just Google it. Um, I, I use them all the time. I'll give you a couple, but he, he has questions like this. Um, what's your most treasured possession? What's a trait you mo- most deplore in yourself? That's a great one. What's a trait you most deplore in someone else? <laughs> Is that me? Um, what's your greatest regret? How would you like to die? I don't recommend that one on the first date. <laughs> I don't wanna die on my first date. I do know that. And it's just a great way, like, I think we need to have more plans when it comes to friendships and marriages and really plan on how do we grow these things? How do we see Christ formed in one another? And are we asking good questions of each other? Wanting to see those things happen. And that brings real help. That was Paul. I have this plan for you and I'm agonizing and I'm going for it. I love that. And then finally, he compares, he compares the Christian life to being pregnant. Not stopping a thousand things and starting a thousand new things, right? It's like being pregnant, okay? When someone is pregnant, you notice it, right? You notice it. Now make sure you know she's pregnant before you ask if she's pregnant. Number one rule in pregnancy, Find out from someone else. Then say, wow, you're so cute. Wow, okay. And then what happens in pregnancy? That life just grows. It just grows and it grows. And pretty soon it looks like that kid's doing karate in there because he wants more room. Give me more room, right? Bigger and bigger. And you cannot fake a pregnancy. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant and the baby will grow. And Paul says, that's the Christian life. I love that. And that new life takes over, doesn't it? You have a baby, takes over, becomes the most important thing, changes every aspect of your life. You trade in your sports car for a minivan, changes every aspect of your life the way it's supposed to. That's the Christian life. It's the implanted life of Jesus Christ in you and me that grows And Jesus keeps saying, give me more room. Give me more room. Give me those thoughts. Give me those ideas. Give me that ambition. Give me that. Let me sanctify that and use it for my kingdom. That's the Christian life.
pregnant with Jesus. <laughs> and I thought I was gonna make it, but I'm not going to. Verses 21 through 31, you can read it. It's an example. I'll do it next. Well, we actually have a Thanksgiving celebration next week. I'll do it the following week. But it's an example of everything Paul said, just like a good preacher. He gives theology, he gives his heart, and then he gives an example. A very, very brilliant message in chapter four. So Jesus So much of our spiritual formation is not having your life planted in us. So much of it is works of the flesh, treading water, getting exhausted, giving up, redoing. So much is out of guilt and condemnation or duty not as sons and daughters, because of life and love and relationship and you're our Abba. We're so easily deceived by the stoichion, by the elemental things that drag us back in and put strings on us. We need your help. Spirit, we need your help to cut off strings that entangle us that enslave us, that reduce the brilliant life that you planted into us. It reduces it to a set of moral behaviors that just in, rob us of all joy in life. And it's such a fine line. It'll give us wisdom. May we be a group of people that hear from your spirit, whispering into our spirits that we are your children and that you love us and that you're holding on to us and that you have a plan for us and that you are not disappointed in us that there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, that you've given to us yourself, that you are our inheritance. You are our exceeding great reward. It's you. And may we move from that position of belonging and acceptance and love out into the world that you set before us with a childlike faith and anticipation of the good things that you wanna do with our life. May we be believers in the greatness of your grace and your mercy. Help us in that. May we easily run to your throne of grace, receiving the help that we need in our time of need, knowing that you do not cast us out or condemn us, but you welcome us every time. Welcome us as your sons, as your daughters. May these truths, may they sink from our head into our hearts 
and become the things that we not just believe, but we are living, becoming. May the word become flesh and dwell in us. May your life grow inside of us and set us free from the strings that entrap us, we pray. May we be real boys and girls living in our dad's great world. And I ask this in your name, amen. Amen, Amen. God bless you guys.